There's just a growing awareness about what happens to our digital life after we die. The Oxford Internet Institute estimates that there's going to be more Facebook accounts belonging to the deceased than living people by the year 2100. They're estimating about 3.6 billion profiles, and it makes sense. That's Alison Rees, Senior Strategist at WGSN Insight Speaking. Now, Alison recently wrote a forecast called The Future of Death. And in this episode, we'll be talking about the key issues that will shape the ideas, rituals and economy of death in 2023 and beyond. Now, obviously, this topic might be scary and uncomfortable for some. But Alison's research found that the majority of people today are desperate to talk about death, to learn more about the act of dying and to share their fears with loved ones and perhaps even people they've never met before. I'm Carla Bazashi, and you're listening to Lives of Tomorrow. Alison, welcome back. How are you? I'm well. I'm happy to be back. Thanks for having me. Your voice is going to be familiar for people who've been listening since we launched this podcast because you were actually my first guest for the episode December last year, I think it was, when it was actually kind of a brainstorming session um, about what we were going to do with this podcast. Now, at that time, our listeners didn't really get to hear, I guess, a huge amount about you. We were more talking about how we were going to frame and form this podcast. So let's remedy that. Can you (laughs) tell everyone how you ended up in the job you have now? So how did you become a trend forecaster and were there any pivotal moments that have affected your career? When I first started out, I didn't know that it was a job and I sort of just fell into it because I was really interested in fashion. So I started on the fashion and retail side of things for about three years and I just loved it. And I I just loved the thought process and the methodology behind what we do. That was so interesting to me because I think, especially with fashion, it gets kind of a bad reputation sometimes for being really uh, superficial. And what we do goes so much deeper than that and gets behind the why. And so that's what really got me interested. And then I sort of took a break for a while and I worked in some startups and just kind of worked in the fashion tech world of like the 2010s, which seemed like everybody did, worked in the fashion tech world in the 2010s. That was just like a rite of passage. And then I came back and I've been back here for about seven years now. Actually, my seven year anniversary was just a week ago. Congratulations. Now, I'm also going to use this opportunity to change up the reoccurring questions that we've been asking all of the guests, but we'll get to that in a minute. In fact, I think you came up with most of the original ones, so we've come up with some new ones, but more on that later. So first of all, let's talk about death. Now, you've covered death and death rituals as part of WGSN's consumer lifestyle coverage since 2017. I think if we scrolled back through uh, all those forecasts, why did you think now was an important time for an update? Yeah, we've been covering this and tracking this for a while. But before the pandemic even started, we were dealing with an aging population. And this is something that we have written about quite a bit on WGSN. So the world's population of people over 60 is going to double by 2050. It's supposed to be 2.1 billion. That's 22% of society. So that alone, even before the pandemic, that aspect alone made us think about, okay, they're could be a large cohort of people, consumers dying over the next decade. So there was that. And then when the pandemic happened, that really brought death into quite close to consumers' 
everyday lives. And we started to notice a lot of social media discussions around death and dying. So that is, so that's when we started compiling the research. And this really was, this report really was about a year, almost 18 months in the making between me and a few of my colleagues. So it's taken quite a long time to compile this research because there was so much going on in this space. So you mentioned there were lots of conversations happening on social media. Was there anywhere in particular and were there any particular age groups talking about it? Yes. So we were following what is called death talk. Maybe you've heard of it. It's gotten some press. This is on TikTok. It has has earned almost 450 million views. There's a similar channel called Cancer Talk, which has almost 400 million views, but Death Talk is a little bit more popular. And this is people of all ages, but it but it is young people, particularly because that's a lot of TikTok users. But the people who are producing content for Death Talk, it's mostly people who care for the dying. So like palliative care workers, hospice care workers. Most of these videos are pretty humorous, which, you know, can offer a catharsis to people. But they also offer a lot of like practical information as well. Just a lot of stuff that you would not otherwise really know about until, you know, unless you work with the dying. And so we're finding just people, consumers are really interested in learning more about death and the act of dying and almost like being more prepared for death. Going back to what you were saying before that, yes, we've got this aging population, but COVID did bring it kind of really close to home for so many people. And that aspect of, well, people were scared, right? They were really, really scared. And although in the end it was mainly older people who were affected really seriously by COVID, everybody has an example of someone they knew who they thought was young and healthy, who was badly affected by it. And those conversations don't normally happen especially with young people. We all think we're invincible when we're younger. So it's bringing it home. And then I guess this is an example of where social media is there for good because it makes that conversation easier to happen and I guess takes some of the difficulty away. It's very difficult to have those conversations in real life, I think, especially with people you love because you think that you're worried about how that's going to affect them. So here is, yeah, TikTok for good uh, and hopefully making these conversations easy, which makes people more prepared for it. Yes, there's a, you know, obviously the parasocial relationship we have with the people that we follow on social media. It's that one sided relationship and it almost kind of can desensitize the conversation a little bit and make people a little bit more comfortable. So it's not so you're talking about death. You're not necessarily talking about the death of a loved one or someone very close to you. Just the just the act of death in general and the fact that, yes, this does happen and this will happen to all of us. Yeah, I mean, it's the only absolute certainty for everyone, isn't it? So because that's ironic, it's not something that gets spoken about. But well, let, okay, let's let's move then into, so people are sharing stories and providing more support. What are the, what are the products and services out there now that enable all of us to be better prepared for this? Yes, yeah, so we see this interest in death happening really all over the world at a global scale. So we've seen there's an interest in Chinese students, Chinese college students, that they want more of a death curriculum, almost in the same way that like 
you would get like a sex ed curriculum or something like that. So that's like the young, the younger end of the spectrum. There's just um, more of a push for deaf education and what we call in the report deaf literacy. But on the older end of the spectrum, so later generations, so people that are you know closer to death. Um, there's almost like a wanting to practice death. So one of the things that we cite in the report is this practice in Japan, and it's called Seizen-so. I'm probably not pronouncing that perfectly, so please excuse me. But this is actually like the act of staging your own death and doing this while you are alive. And this practice actually helps older people take ownership of their death celebration and you know, remove that burden from the family. So everything gets planned out then. The financial aspect of things is also planned out here. So when they actually pass away, it allows them to not have that kind of burden. Oh, I'm leaving my family with all of these things to do, or this isn't exactly what I wanted. This is allowing people to plan for the death and the funeral that they want. So this is happening in Japan. We're also seeing it happen in Singapore as well. And there's a lot of services like and companies that that cater to this. So that's one that I actually think is quite beautiful. Um, and I think there's so many things that we don't say to our loved ones when they're alive that maybe we're able to finally say after their death. And this is potentially an opportunity to be honest with the people that you love. And Yeah, this is reminding me there's an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm when yes. one of Larry David's friends has his funeral before he's died because he wants to hear all the lovely things that people are going to say. And I always thought that's quite a good idea because yeah, you know, yeah. you're not going to be around for people to say these really nice things after you die. It's true. You know, I, when you think about, you know, in the States, we often call it a celebration of life for people that don't necessarily want to have a traditional funeral. And why not have that celebration of life when you're still alive? You know, it's it's what's wrong with that? So that is one thing that we're seeing. Um, we're also seeing sort of like more of a dialogue around the nuts and bolts of the existing things in your life after you die. So things like money, things like estate planning. The Reimagine Festival is a festival in the U.S. that is part very woo-woo and very spiritual and kind of guides people through the acceptance of death and thinking about their death. But it also provides all of this really, really worthwhile pra practical information. Things like estate planning and will planning and financial planning. These are things that are really, really key because when someone dies close to you, obviously there's the very emotional aspect of that that you're dealing with, the grief aspect, but then there's also like the real life stuff. Like what if, you know, in the States we have what's called probate where what if, you know, money goes into probate or there wasn't a living, a living will and trust. So there's all of those grosser, you don't really want to talk about aspects, but you have to talk about it. There's a lot of admin, it's, right? There's a huge amount yes, of admin. Yes. And it does often fall to the person who was closest to the individual who's passed away. And so they are, it's exactly what you're saying, that people dealing with all this grief. And I, I, this has happened to someone I know recently, and they're devastated. And yet all their time is being taken up with planning the funeral, thinking about the house which needs selling, clearing out someone's belongings, which means there's not much time to process the grief and come to terms with what's happened. So it does make absolute sense. But 
it's still very difficult to have those conversations early on. And I think on both sides, you know, maybe young people worrying about their parents or grandparents or older family members. But then for those people, as they're getting closer, perhaps to the end of their life, it's, I guess, the last thing you want to be thinking about. Yes. And I think it's I think it's important to and a lot of a lot of the companies that we talked about in the in the report, they want they want this these types of services and this thought process around financial plan, planning and and preparation for death. They want it to be for everyone. So obviously, yes, when we think about people dying, we t- we tend to think about older people, but people die all the time of all ages and those people have different assets and different financial situations so it's you know it's it's conversations for everyone it's not just for for older people and that is a big takeaway from our report and from the research that we did is that this infrastructure around um, financial literacy and preparing for death needs to be a conversation that everyone has. People with children, people without children, anybody alive should be having these conversations and 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 planning for the fact that they will eventually die. Has this prompted you to have more conversations with your family? Well, I am one of those people that always thinks I'm going to die. <laughs> so, um, okay. <laughs> I'm gonna always be prepared type of person, and I would I believe I was. That's raised. a more positive way of spinning it, by the yes, way. That's a yes, much more positive you. way of putting it. It's just about being prepared rather than spending your entire life worrying about the end of it. Right. I don't. I don't think about dying every day. I, I should take that back. But I will say, I was raised. My mother lost her father early, and I think that really shaped who she was. And thinking about independence, financial independence, and and again, always being prepared. And so she really raised my sister and I to think about that and think about putting money away and always saving money and having a beneficiary. And once I got married, she, you know, she said to me, she was, you know, you have to have life insurance and you should have a a living will. And when I had a child, she said the same thing. You know, you need to make sure that you have a plan for if anything happens to you and your husband. So I'm relatively young in the grand scheme of things, but I do have all that stuff figured out, thankfully. And so I felt quite on it when I was writing the report. <laughs> so let's talk a bit more about you. So we're going to um, just change tack a little bit. Obviously, we're coming back to this conversation in a second. So I mentioned earlier that the reoccurring questions, which lots of my guests have now answered, you helped me come up with. So we've got some new ones. You get to be the guinea pig again. And then if they work, then we'll be asking many people these afterwards. So when and how do you prioritize yourself? I think if you ask my husband, he would say, you do this every day. <laughs> but I try to make time for myself most days. Obviously, some days are busier than others. But I try to exercise every day. That's a big thing for me. Um, that helps me clear my head. Um, and then I think also, uh, you know, at the end of the night, after my son's gone to sleep, I try to just decompress a little, be off my phone, not necessarily be off screens because I definitely will be watching TV or something, but just having downtime throughout the day. And then I also, I'm incredibly lucky here in LA. I have a wonderful circle of girlfriends. And so spending time with my girlfriends, we try to get together around all of us. There's about eight of us. So, you know, sometimes we're all there, sometimes we're not, but we try to get together around once a month to 
have a little bit of wine and chat. And, and, and I think that that's really important, especially that was something we continued on during the pandemic, sitting outside in like <laughs> six feet apart. But that was really key then. Um, and it continues to be really key. What will you eat if you're home alone and no one is watching? I can't believe I'm even admitting this right now. <laughs> I I buy like the, in the States, we call them place and bake, where it's pre-made cookie dough in little balls and they're frozen and you just place them on the cookie sheet and bake them. I will buy those frozen and I will make a few cookies in the oven, but I will just eat them just straight up the raw cookie dough. And I'm pretty sure everyone in my family knows that I do this, but I do do this and I only do it when I'm home alone. And it's like my my favorite thing. <laughs> so this is already, this question is definitely sticking in here because you're telling me something that you don't want other people to know about. This is really good. Most people know I love cookie dough, but just, you know, it's not a great thing to admit that I'm just eating raw cookie dough out of the freezer. But here we are. <laughs> I like that. What is your bad habit, if you have one, apart from the cookie dough? I sometimes bite my nails, which I find to be a very unattractive. When I see other people doing it, I'm like, why are you doing that? But I will. Thankfully, I don't do it all the time. But if I'm nervous about something or something's on my mind, I'll just bite off all my nails. And I think it's very juvenile and gross. And yeah, I don't I don't like it. It's, uh, it's unladylike. <laughs> <laughs> and ladylike. What was the last thing that intrigued you? You know, I just started watching the new David Attenborough Apple Plus TV, which is all about on prehistoric life. It's kind of amazing. So it's all animated and the animation is incredible. And I just felt like I was I was watching it with my son and I just felt like I was learning so much. And I know way too much now about prehistoric life. And my son is really into that era right now. He's into dinosaurs, but he's also sort of into like the Ice Age as well. And I never really had that stage as a kid. I think people, have, obviously kids have different stages and like they get obsessed with different things. I was never into that, but my son is super into it. And I am fascinated by how much I learned in just the one hour of the David Attenborough special that I watched. Yeah, I just really recommend watching that show. It was definitely intriguing to me. And it's, I think, a really great show for people of all ages. Okay. All right. So we've done, we've done the fun stuff. We've got to know you a little bit, which means we do need to come back to the topic in hand. So let's, uh, Jason, let's talk about funerals a little bit. So there's there's been a lot of headlines about more sustainable funerals and the, the green funeral market. As the forecaster, do you think that this is a trend that we're going to see continuing in the future? Where has it been born out of? Yes. So the green funeral market is really expanding at the moment and, and it's two pronged. So one side of it has very much to do with the cost of living crisis. So just rising energy prices all over Europe, in the UK, in the report, we found that one in three British adults fear that they actually wouldn't even be able to pay for a loved one's funeral, which is really heartbreaking. And just the cost of funerals in general. Typically, this is talking about cremations, but it's also burials as well. It's really gotten out of control. And so there's this rise of more basic funerals. 
So this is what they would call direct crematorium. This is making up right now around a fifth of funerals in the UK. And so people are doing away with like a formal service where, you know, they would have a celebration of life or there maybe like a catered event with lots of flowers. So there's that aspect of it, which is really important to think about because it also it also puts into perspective like how what do you really need for a for a funeral? Like during the pandemic, we weren't able to have these big funerals as well and people got by. And so it, it there's a reimagining of like what is really important when it comes to a, a funeral. So there's that. And then the other aspect of this new market is sustainability concerns. So cremation has become the most popular post-death option in most countries outside of the like majority Catholic countries who opt for burial. But historically, just an earth burial, that was the norm until the late 1800s, basically until like the Industrial Revolution when cremation became just simpler and easier. But it also was considered a healthier, like more sanitary alternative. So over the years, cremation has just became has just become what people do and it's cheaper, but it's very polluting as well. So there's been a movement towards just alter alternatives to cremation. We pay a lot of attention to that in the report. So we talk about terramation, which is, this is also known as human composting. This has gotten a lot of press, and this is probably what people who are listening, what maybe they've heard about. So this uses a fraction of the energy that is required for cremation. It takes about eight to 12 weeks, and it basically turns a corpse into rich soil. Um, which is something that we need. So there's a few uh, practitioners doing this in the United States. Recompose, again, is one that is has gotten a lot of press because it's a quite striking process. Like there's a very beautiful kind of vessel that the per that the corpse is put into. And they have actually, I won't call them retail outposts, but they're almost like funeral homes and funeral chambers where they keep all of the corpses and these are all being processed and turning into earth. And so it's quite, when you see images of it, it's quite striking. And so I can see why, you know, it's gotten a lot of press for that. But there's other companies as well doing this. So that's one. And then the other process is aquamation. This is also known as alkaline hydrolysis. So this basically like dissolves the tissues of the bodies and basically turns it into water. And then that water just kind of goes into another body of water. Uh, this became, this also got pressed because Archbishop Desmond Tutu, he got a water cremation for his death last year. And so it became you know, it's sort of a headline. It's not legal everywhere. It's legal in the Netherlands and in the UK and in parts of the US and in Canada. But it's very eco-friendly. It cuts gas emissions by 35 to 90 percent. So this is something that it's a little bit more expensive. But if reducing emissions is a priority, that would be something that people might want to pay for. Okay, so we're going to switch gears a little bit. We've been tracking the digital afterlife for many years at WGSN, and that's given rise to new jobs like digital undertakers, and I guess new considerations for everyone thinking about digital wills. Has the has the conversation shifted from afterlife to maybe even immortality with the rise and maturity of AI? So what can you tell me about this, this aspect of death? 
Yeah. So there's just a growing awareness about what happens to our digital life after we die. The Oxford Internet Institute estimates that there's going to be more Facebook accounts belonging to the deceased than living people by the year 2100. They're estimating, yeah, they're estimating about 3.6 billion profiles. And it makes sense when you think, you know, some people have multiple profiles. Or My colleague, Cassandra Napoli, she wrote this really amazing report on WGSN called Digital Immortality, and it's dedicated to this. And It looks at the different technologies that are coming out that deal with digital afterlife. And some of those have to do with bringing, almost bringing back the dead in some way. So this South Korean company that we're following, it's called Deep Brain AI. They launched a product called Rememory, which is a software that actually allows you to like speak and interact with your deceased loved one. And they use speech recognition technology and language processing to basically like make a replica of the person and mimic their speech. So that is something that perhaps some people would want to do. Some people maybe not. But that is a lot of what we're seeing when it comes to like the AI space and digital afterlife is like people almost bringing back dead loved ones in order to fulfill like some sort of closure or therapeutic purpose. Presumably there's there are many ethical questions about AI, but in this instance, I can imagine there are many, many before we sort of jump in with two feet. Yes, yes, absolutely. When you think about like, you know, consent, you would obviously want to have consent from the deceased to use their likeness, their voice. A lot of times it's kind of like it's stories that have been filled in by loved ones or even recordings that have been done before people have passed away of their voice. And it's hard to even know if this type of thing is even like beneficial for grieving. It's almost like you would want to have some sort of mental health practitioner on site to walk you through this process if it was something that you wanted to do. On the other hand, it could also be something perhaps really beneficial for closure or ending grief. You know, people talk about, quote unquote, unfinished business, that type of thing. So I can't really speak to if people would find that helpful. I think that's that is a person to person situation in the same way that people seek out psychics or mediums or and have been doing for generations you know this is this is maybe the next version of that but it does call into question like the ethics of it and this is still very very new okay so finally the question i ask everyone towards the end of each of these podcasts looking forward are you more anxious or hopeful about the future I think when you work in this industry, you have to be hopeful because you're always looking forward. And being a trend forecaster has made me more hopeful because you're constantly seeing designers and innovators work on things that are going to make lives better. I definitely have my pessimistic days, as I mentioned, that, you know, the thinking about death every now and then. But for the most part, I consider myself a, a pretty hopeful, optimistic person. When you're having those days when you're thinking about death, what are you planning for your own funeral? Of all the options now that you know are available. If I had my way, it would be, because I'm a huge, huge musical theater nerd, it would be like, there would be like a musical theater flash mob. Everyone would get lyrics ahead of time. They would know their parts. (laughs) Like there would be a lot of joyful singing to just like my favorite musicals. 
Okay, that was not the answer I was expecting, but that <laughs> that leaves us on a beautiful high note, which I love. So thank you so much, Alison. Listeners, I hope you've learned something new for what could be a very difficult conversation, but it's a really important one. And I'm so grateful to Alison for joining me to help me learn and uh, exchange ideas and perspectives on the future of death and how it will affect all our lives. The Lives of Tomorrow podcast will be back in two weeks, but next Friday you can listen to our sister podcast, Create Tomorrow, all about the future of design and product. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you're with us for the first time, welcome and thank you so much for listening. We're here every other Friday with a new episode about societal, cultural trends and how they're going to impact all our lives of tomorrow. And I think that's it for today. I'm Carla Bazashi, CEO of WGSN. I'll see you next time.